wow. Then you guys just sit. It's just amazing. It's like the cadence of church talk. Five seconds and then you're done. It's awesome. Hey, uh, as Nick mentioned, my name is Dan Debo. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my total joy to, uh, to serve and uh, be with you today. And um, if this is your first time, I want to just say welcome. Thanks for trusting us with this time together. We've been in this series called Love Math. We have been doing since Easter of last year, over a year now, we've been doing this Bible crawl through a New Testament letter called Ephesians. The Apostle Paul has been writing to a church and a group of churches around what would be considered modern-day Turkey, and he's been talking about who they are and how they are to live, and, and the, the letter is called Ephesians. And what I love about going through just like a book of the Bible, pretty much like passage by passage, chunk by chunk, is I don't get to pick what we talk about. That's pretty much handed to me. I can't cherry pick. There's, there's a different way to do it, which is topical series. I like those two. There's nothing wrong with them where it's like, hmm, what do we want to talk about? What should we talk about? All those things. But when you just go step by step through the scriptures and the passage, you pretty much just get what's handed to you. And what we are given today, and I believe it's a gift that we're given it, is a really heavy and hard passage that we find in Ephesians chapter 6, and it begins like this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor, when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Paul says some important things here. He says, actually, and we'll get to it, some progressive things. But I think if we're all honest, we want him to go a lot further than he does here, right? I mean, why doesn't he just release a manifesto and call out for the abolition of, of slavery in his time and his day? And we step back, we look at the whole Bible, and we go, why doesn't the Bible just make it so clear it would have saved us a civil war? Right? I mean, you struggle with that? Passages like this, just going, why couldn't it be more clear? Why didn't Paul go further? I think we'd all say we want him to. Why doesn't he? How are we to understand the scriptures at large related to this issue and other ones? Do you join me in that question? Can you feel the tension in a passage like that as it relates to where you and I live today? Well, let me just pause. I just, I just want to say this about you, Heartland. I just, I love that we're a church that can lean into the tension. I love that we're a people that are trying to cultivate honesty in such a way that we want to go into these places. We don't want to run from them. And so we're going to address this. We're going to go even deeper into other tensions that all impact every sing, single one of us. And I just want to say from the get-go, thank you. Thank you for being that kind of people. It just makes it such a privilege to, to serve and lead a people like this. And so how do we press into this, to this tension? I want to offer 
this kind of framework or rubric by which to understand what's happening here in the scriptures. The Bible we believe to be the infallible word of God, which means it's without error in all that God intends to speak on matters of faith and practice. And really when you open up the Bible, basically anywhere, you're gonna see three storylines kind of intersecting. One, the story of that time and day, of that culture, the scholars call it the Sitzenleben, the situation in life in which the events were occurring as they're being recorded or recorded later. Two, the storyline of your life and my life as, it's, as the Bible reflects back to us, our story. And then three, this meta-narrative story of God and his redemption, per, redemptive pursuit from since before the beginning of time until the fulfillment of time when Jesus literally and physically returns. And so basically what we see in a moment like this, like what we just read, and as it relates to slavery or other things like this is the Bible meets culture right where it is, advances it forward, and then plants seeds of redemption in the hearts of Jesus' followers throughout the ages that lead ultimately to what we'll call a kingdom ethic. This uh, way of understanding and being faithful to all three storylines in the scripture is called the uh, redemptive hermeneutic. And hermeneutic just means how do we accurately interpret the scriptures? How do we be faithful to what God is trying to offer us in that story? And it looks like this. There is a culture in which the Bible engages with, and and we'll call it X. And by the way, I just want to say to anyone listening by podcast, this would be the sermon to videocast, not just to listen to, but to watch. A lot of whiteboard fun today. And so uh, the Bible meets culture where it's at, but then advances it forward. We'll call that to Y and then plant seeds of redemptive flourishing that will live on through the church to what we'll just call Z, the kingdom ethic, the the, the ultimate kingdom of God. That's where the, the, the kingdom is something that Jesus talked about more than anything else. He just cast this vision of where the rule, the reign, and the realm of God is always in full expression. It's where God holds complete sway over all things. It's where right relationships, that's called righteousness. It's where wrong things are made right and finally and ultimately right. That's called justice and the Hebrews have a word for it. It's just simply called shalom. The complete and total flourishing throughout all that God in the very beginning called good and very good for all people and for all creation. And so you have culture being met by the Bible, being, advancing it forward, planting seeds that lead ultimately to the expression of the kingdom of God. So how does this work? By the way, does this make sense? You you with me at least in terms of the framework? Good, okay, wanna make sure you're with me. So with slavery, what was the culture in which the Bible first encounters it? Well, it was etched in stone, slavery was. It wasn't even a question whether it could be abolished. It's just, it was just basically like a caste system. It was, just, it was just the way it was. No one was thinking about it ever going away. And yes, we've talked about it being more of an indentured servant kind of thing to get out of debt. Sometimes slaves were slaves by prisoner of war and the like, but pretty much always it was barbaric. It was barbaric. And then the Jews found themselves in slavery and they experienced that barbarism. And then they had their own slaves. And that's where we begin to see the advance of redemptive measures. Just wanna show you here six different places where in the Old Testament, 
this radical progressiveness of care for slaves, a day of rest. Who gets that, they would say. Seventh year release for Hebrew slaves, provisions for slaves upon release, limitation for slaves against beatings, refuge and safety for foreign runaway slaves, denouncement of slave traders. Do you see, these were all completely unheard of, completely radical measures of redemption that advances the culture forward, but, but we have to say, not far enough. As you read in the Old Testament, you'll still see other things that you just go, ooh, ah, no, please, how come? As it continually progresses forward, what's called progressive revelation of all the deepest heart of God made manifest in flesh, namely in Jesus, all that he did, all that he taught, all that he said, all the ways that he loved, maybe primarily we'll just point to that one moment where he walks into the synagogue, he's handed a scroll, he turns to the, the, the scroll of Isaiah, the 61st chapter, and he repeats basically his mission statement, which was to set those who are in bondage free. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and to set the oppressed free. Now we look at that and we go, is that spiritual or is that physical? And the answer is yes. Anything that's in bondage, anything that's not free, just like I want to set you free emotionally, intellectually, physically, spiritually. And that's why I've come. And then his very life and heart was implanted in followers that are also recorded in the Bible and like the book of Acts, like in guys like Paul and Peter and John and these kinds of guys, and they began to live this flourishing out, and that's where we come to Paul. What makes Ephesians actually so radical for its day, twofold, one, is that Paul addresses slaves as full human beings capable of, of moral um, and personal will that they are thinking human beings. They weren't treated that way back in that day. And then two, and more radically, is he completely flattened the strata between master and slave. No one ever did that. No one would say to a master, treat your servants or slaves in the same way I'm calling them to treat you. No one would ever do that. And in fact, I wanna, um, I wanna offer you a resource that's been super helpful to me for like, I don't know how many, 20 years or so. It's called the Hard Sayings of the Bible. And whenever I go to one of those places, I'm like, what do I do with that? Where do I file that one, God? Um, hopefully I pray, and then I go to this book uh, because it offers a very helpful insight to the culture, possible scenarios of what's going on. It's very, uh, I think, even-handed, but something that's fairly, or very, I should say, reliable. It's called The Hard Sayings of the Bible. It's by some pretty stout scholars like Walter C. Kaiser Jr., F.F. Bruce, and the like. Here's what they say upon reflection of this Ephesians passage. It was unheard of to call a social superior, that's a slave, to respect and respond to a call to duty toward social inferiors. That's a master to a slave. In fact, one could say that Paul brings the masters down to the level of their slaves and makes them treat their slave as a brother or sister. Completely unheard of. Do you see it moving this forward? And we see this actually in Paul's life. He wrote another New Testament letter. It's called Philemon. He writes it personally to a man named Philemon who is a Christ follower and a slave owner. And Paul happened to run into one of his runaway slaves. They were in prison together. 
And when he gets out, his name was Onesimus, this part will make you cringe a little bit, but Paul sends Onesius back to Philemon and says, are you gonna look at him as a slave or are you gonna look at him as a brother? And I'm asking you, Paul says, he personally advocates and says, I'm asking you to set him free. And if that costs you anything, Philemon, he says, charge me. Paul opens up like a line of credit and says, any damages, any costs, you charge me, he says. What's he doing there? He's, he's saying, do you see him as slave or brother? He's saying, you'll both be free if Onesimus goes free. And I think this is a discipling moment from Paul to Philemon to make him look at what, what view am I going to view another human being through the lens of my culture or through the new lens of Jesus? As Paul writes in two different places, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. Look at this with me, please. Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul's doing. This is so radical. It's like We're not going to buy in to the hierarchies, to the power grid. We're not going to buy in to the lens by which we evaluate people, grade people. We're going to now see people through the lens of Jesus, and we're all one. And Philemon, will you do that? And I believe in this so personally, I'm willing to put my wallet on the table for it to happen. It's powerful. It's powerful. And that's the, from the Old Testament to the New Testament to here we are 50 days after the resurrection Sunday. It's called the day of Pentecost. 2,000 years ago, that's when the Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus and entered into the age where we today, as the church, have the seeds of the kingdom planted in us. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit in us. And as it relates to slavery, through people like William Wilberforce, Dr. Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Nelson Mandela, Father Damien, the list goes on and on. These people have carried this redemptive trajectory in their hearts and have done some amazing good. But here's the tragedy. The tragedy is it's not always a straight line, right? It's not always a straight line. Because we're a broken people and as much as Jesus said, here's how you're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, join me, Jesus is saying, in bringing this to full fruition, we mess it up. I mean, just if, if we're on this timeline here, and let's say, so I don't know where we are, I don't know when Jesus will return, hopefully it's here, right? But let's say, this is 1526, this is when the first slave arrived on the South Carolina shore by the Spanish. And for the next nearly 500 years, what has been the redemptive trajectory in our history and in our story? Well, we're in this series, it's called Love Math because we're looking at the deep heart of God, we're looking at his scriptures, and trying to just ask the question, how can we flourish and thrive in all of our different relationships? God is a God of relationship. We want to be a people who have his heart for relationship in our hearts. And so we've been using these funky, sometimes whimsical formulas to get to the heart of God for relationship. I want to offer you one that is not whimsical. I want to offer you what I think is one of the most egregious and horrific formulas in American history. I don't know if it's ever been written this way, but it goes like this. 
Recognize that? Access our history books. S equals three-fifths F. Three-fifths ring a bell? The three-fifths compromise. What was that about? It goes all the way back to the formation of our union in which there's a great debate. Literally, the, the, the possibility of a union was completely falling apart. Why? In part, because the North looks at the South and they're saying, you can't count all of your slaves for population, which will mean representation in Congress. You can't do that. Why? Because you consider them property. And the South said, well, we kind of consider them property, but we also consider them persons as well. And we want to make sure that we get, gain adequate access to federal funding through taxation. It was a question of representation and taxation. And there was this big squabble and everything was on the line. So they came to a compromise and they said, okay, well, slaves equal just three-fifths of a free person. And it's literally that swing hinge moment that helped forge our union. Got ratified. Got codified in us, actually. Look at how they talked about it. Here's from official documents. The federal constitution, therefore, decides with great propriety on the case of our slaves when it views them in the mixed character of persons and of property. This is, in fact, their true character. And that is from James Madison, primary author of our Constitution, also himself a slave owner. And what I want to submit to us today, church, this isn't just in our history books. It's in us. It's in our living history. And what I want to ask of us at the end of our time together is we're going to call upon Jesus, the power of Jesus, to break every chain where this is true. But first, we've got to ask two questions that I know swirl in us every single time this conversation comes up. Number one, why can't we just move on? Number two, what does this have to do with me? It's not my sin. So let me just briefly address the first, and then we'll spend a little more time with the second. Why can't we move on? Quite simply, because we're not healed. Do you think we're healed in this country? Just the last five years, I think we've realized we're far less healed than we ever fancied ourselves to be. Would you agree with that? Just go through your news feeds, pick your, pick your poison, whatever cable news you want to listen to. Do you think we're healed? You can't move on until and as you're being healed. That's true in any relationship, isn't it? For someone who's suffered from abuse in any of its forms, we don't say to them, why can't you just move on from this? For, for a child who's, who has a broken arm, he goes, well, why can't you just move on from that? I don't understand. In a marriage that's experiencing horrible conflict, we don't just say, well, let's just move on. No, you've got to go to the source of the pain. You've got to understand what's going on. You've got to see and own your own contribution to it. There's no way to move on. There's no way to be set free until what's broken is healed. So that's why we can't move on. Now what does this have to do with me? I mean, I didn't 
I didn't go to Africa and capture, I didn't, I didn't own the plantation, I didn't come up with this equation. What does this have to do? This is not my sin. Well, in answer to that, I would just, I would submit to you. That question comes from a very limiting view of biblical sin, a very limiting view of how the Bible offers us what sin is. Sin, first of all, the word is amartia in the Greek, and it means to miss the mark, to miss the mark. That's all, that's all that it means. What's the mark? The mark is, flip this back around, it's Z, it's the kingdom, it's God's deepest heart for all creation. It's God's purpose and perfect intent for all things. And whenever we aim with our lives or whatever we do, when we miss that mark, it's sin. Whether it's something that we do explicitly or whether it's something that we do indifferently, it just missed the mark. And the Bible is really, really clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Another way of saying the kingdom is God's glory. We fall short of it all, right? Now, when we think of that, we just generally think of you and me. I think of myself, Dan Debo. I fall short all the time. You think of yourself. I fall short, right? We're made beautifully in the image of God, but we have this broken piece to us. But actually, it's larger than us, too. It's larger than than you and me. In fact, I want to offer to you there are four different layers to sin that the Bible offers us. The first one is personal, and that's the things I do that I shouldn't, or the things I don't do that I should of. Then there's generational sin. And this is the sin of our ancestors passed on to us. And then there's communal sin. This is, these are the sins of a people, collective, together. And then there's societal sin. The systemic sins within a society that are the culmination of all of these things that affect us all. And what I want to offer to you from the very forefront is that this equation finds its expression today through every single one of these layers in your life and in my life. Let's start with personal. Personal is maybe best portrayed by King David, man. He, he was a personal sin machine with his blunder with a woman named Bathsheba that led to adultery, that led to murder, that was just rift with pride and the whole thing. And he writes a song about it when he decides to take ownership for it because God wants to break this chain in his life. So he cries out and says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He's not talking about anyone else's sins. He's owning his own. And then he goes a little bit deeper. Two verses later, he goes, but you know what? This isn't just something I've done. I have to own that, yeah, I'm made beautiful in the image of God, but I am broken too. And he says, I, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's, he's making personal what he has either done explicitly or even implicitly, and as it relates to the question of slavery and this equation, how many of us would say there's things we've done? If I go back through my own history, there's things I've said, there's things I've done, and there's things that I've thought. There's a lot of research out today about implicit bias. 
And what the research points to is that you and I, if for those of us that are willing to see it in our own lives, that we instinctively, subconsciously, assign certain characteristics to certain kinds of people different than us, in particular with African Americans. It's just a blink reaction, and it's so deeply in us. Now, where do you think this came from? Do you think it came from the garden where God said, good, very good, now it's time to rest? Do you think it's in the kingdom of God, in the realm and the reign of God's rule? Do you think he designed his, his people no matter where they come from or what they, do you think he's designed us to have these kind of guarded, fearful thoughts towards others? No. It comes from a deep brokenness that we want, it comes from a chain that we're asking God to break. And by the way, this could easily be applied to Native Americans, to Muslims, to Jews, to Latinos, to immigrants, the word is xenophobia, fear of stranger, and it's in our broken nature. So whether it's explicit or it's implicit, God wants to break this chain. What about generational? There's this beautiful moment where God is depicted in, in Exodus as having these characteristics of forgiveness. Look at this with me here. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. We love all that. That's who God is. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. What's he saying there? He's saying, look, there are consequences to sin. You cannot contain sin in one singular person. There is a cascading effect. It's like the Valdez. It just spills over. And he says, here's how it's going to spill over. That he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Now, if we just looked at that and we just kind of, if, if that's all we saw, we'd go, my gosh, is God this capricious, tyrannical judge? And is he going to punish the kids who weren't even at the scene of the crime? What kind of God is that? I just go, no, I don't think that's what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, this is what sin does. It cascades. It cannot be contained. And there are consequences that happen from one life to the next life to the next life. And interestingly, even this is bearing out scientifically through a thing called epigenetics. Now, we know about how every single one of us, we're, we're, we're somewhat nurture, somewhat nature, and there's all sorts of debates, right? Nature, for me, one of my daughters reminded me that she got my nose. And, and she was, it was a lament, by the way, if you're curious. <laughs> right? And so that's like a genetic kind of hardwiring being passed on. Epigenetics is almost like the software part of us that says this. If you experience trauma in your life, something gets codified in you. And literally, the epigenes within you get transferred to your children, to your children's children, to their children. In other words, it's not just big noses that are getting passed on, it's things like shame and fear and trauma that goes unhealed in a person's life. So if your father served in Vietnam and experienced horrific trauma and it wasn't dealt with and it got codified and those chains were not broken, the consequences of that get carried down to you and to your kids. 
And so now enter the question of why won't this go away? Why do we have to keep talking about this? The trauma of slavery in our story and in our history. We want to think that in 1865, with the abolition of slavery, we could all move on. And we're starting to see no. The trauma goes with us unless the chains are broken. I was gifted a a great book that I'm reading. It's really important. And it's called The Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy. And she, she takes the findings of the epigenetic research and she begins to explore what would this really, what would the impact, what is the impact of this upon African Americans today, and I would even suggest upon all Americans. I mean, take for example just the capture of slavery. Here's a, here's a picture of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Alabama. Just look at that for a moment. Imagine that were you, your children. Then imagine that you actually survived the capture. Many, 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 many did not, and you were put on a slave ship that looked like this. Imagine the trauma of this. Dr. DeGruy, she, she writes about it, and here's what she says, that by the millions, these men, women, and children were loaded onto ships, crammed together with sometimes less than 18 inches between them. Here they would dwell for many weeks to several months in the bowels of the ship. They were deprived of any human comfort and shared in a collective misery. This disgusting place was where they slept, wept, ate, defecated, urinated, menstruated, vomited, gave birth, and died. It has been estimated that the millions of Africans who died en route, and and by the way, en route, not in capture and not upon arrival, died en route, exceeded the number of Jews killed in the Holocaust. Although slavery has long been a part of human history, American chattel slavery represents a case of human trauma not comparable in scope, duration, and consequence with any other incidents of human enslavement. And let's be, be clear, this is not the sins of the slaves being passed down. This is the sins of the perpetrators. I don't know about you, but I can trace my roots back to a plantation. And it begs the question, God, if this is true, if there is generational sin, am I still living under that? Has something been codified in me and in you? And is that a chain you want to break, oh God? Communal sin. To accurately understand the Bible, here's a tip. Anytime the word says you, translate plural. Anytime it says you do this, you don't do that, you go there, just automatically assume plural, because the Hebraic mind 
because the followers of Jesus and because many uh, cultures still around the world think we and then me. They think plural, single. They think of themselves. Their identity is corporate and communal before it is personal and individual. And we have completely flipped it as Americans. We think just instinctively, me first, right? And anyone else second. And so if you're going to come to the scriptures, we have to just go, look, when the Bible talks about sin, whether it's the prophets taking on Israel or Judah, whether it's Jesus and Revelation talking to the seven churches, whether it's Paul addressing in his many letters, short of Philemon, addressing a community of people that have a collective identity and collective sense. Paul, in a different letter, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's addressing a sin that they actually repented of. He's actually cheering them on. And he says that this godly sorrow came upon them, that it's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Another, uh, another time it's written that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. But I just want you to see what, what he says here. First is the principle, godly sorrow. When the Spirit of God comes upon a people, it leads us to turn, to change our mind. That's what repentance means that leads to salvation, it leads to our rescue. That's what salvation means. It means it leads to our rescue, and then get this, leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. That's how you know when it's like right repentance. There, there might be a sorrow that comes upon you, but no shame. There's a warmth, there's a weight, and there's an invitation to want to move forward to God's deep, deep heart. So that's the principle. But now Paul is going to describe to them what's happening in them. He's like, because this has happened, the sorrow of God, it's like so weighed upon you, and you turned and you repented. And now here's what I see. Earnestness. An eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. And I think as a communal people, as the North American church, we've been so fixated on godly rightness that we have missed the most beautiful thing ever, godly sorrow of repentance. And truthfully, it's the thing I've been praying for us over and over is that there would be a godly sorrow upon you and upon me for the things that happened within me that I must own in the chain that God wants to break, for the things that are true in my family and my family story, the chains that God wants to break, and the things that are true in us as a people, whether as Americans or Heartlanders, or somewhere in between, because it all leads up to an expression in our civic life. The systemic sins within society that affect us all. And the Old Testament talks about it when it says that God hates dishonest scales, when it speaks against usury, when Jesus goes into the temple and clears the marketplace, you see that there is this expression of going, there's sin in our society, there are broken things that God wants to make right. There are hurting relationships that God wants to redeem. And we see that as it relates to our very darkened history with slavery. And I want to walk us through just a few. Scientific racism. Phrenology, which is the measuring 
of skulls and assigning lower or higher levels of intelligence, now debunked. Evolutionary racism. Placing African-Americans on display in zoos around our company, our country, and describing them as the missing link between apes and human beings. Medical research racism in fields like gynecology with disease control like syphilis and Tuskegee. That since the abolition of slavery in 1865, up until 1955, there have been over 10,000 lynchings of black men, women, and children, oftentimes before cheering crowds of white men, women, children, and churchgoers. Jim Crow laws. Black code laws. Convict leasing and chain gangs. Police brutality. The disproportionate amount of African Americans incarcerated. Redlining. Blockbusting. Racially restricted covenants in our neighborhoods. Unequal education. Discriminatory wages in marketplace practices. Voter suppression. Gerrymandering. Church segregation. Who will be the people to listen and to with their lives and with their efforts say, this is not true. Who will be the people? And I'll tell you who should be the people. It should be us, the church. That will so listen and stop and say, we are in so much pain collectively. Let's enter into the pain of others. This is why Kaepernick took a knee. 
This is the cry of the Black Lives Matter movement. What, what are we saying? If we just set aside uh, your politics, my politics, we just set it aside, what are they saying? They're saying this is not true, not true, not true. But I've been made in the image of God. I'm a full and complete human being deserving all the dignity bestowed from heaven here on earth. And will we be a people that will write a new equation, that will embody a new equation that represents Z, the kingdom of God here on earth? For right relationships, for wrong things being made right, for shalom, to join the heart of God and Jesus and how he wants to bring fruition of all that is true in heaven right here breaking every chain here, 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 and here. We're going to sing a song called There is Power in Jesus' Name. And there's just a, there's a refrain, break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. And I'm going to ask us to prayerfully just receive that song. And as we do that, I, I want to, let me tell you what I'm not going to ask us to do. I'm not going to ask us to like have some, we'll all get on our knees, we'll all confess. If the Spirit of God wants to move on us, that's great. But I've been in forced times of confession and repentance, and something feels really contrived about it. And I'm not going to call you back to like Wednesday night or some other event or program as if repentance is a one-time event. Here's what I want to ask of us. I want us personally... As you're hearing the song, break every chain, break every chain, I want us to translate it as a prayer to God, break this chain, break this chain. And let's just invite the Holy Spirit to fill in the blank, what is the this? Excuse me, friend. Is there something in in me, oh God, that I must own, and if I don't own it, I can't be set free from it. Is there something in my family or in my story that if I don't own, I can't be set free from it? Is there something in my community, wherever that might be, is there something in my society where I work, live, study, or play? Is there a chain that you want to break? Break this chain, oh God, in me.